Good morning. This is Spirit-Led Discipleship. I'm Nate Harkness, your friend, and I want to walk you through Romans because it's my favorite book of the Bible, and the Bible is alive. It's full of God's words, and um, and the Word of God is living and active, and I really think that that still applies to us today. There's so much criticism of Scripture uh, today, um, and some of it is warranted based on some of our rationalistic reading of Scripture. But fundamentally, I still find that Scripture changes me on the inside because the Spirit of God is in the Word of God. And when Paul is writing to these people in Rome, he wants to preach the gospel to them. And so I want to read through all of Romans for you, but I want to start with chapter 1. And I want to say from the outset that the center of chapter 1 is not Paul's injunction against homosexuality. I grew up in a home in which the newspaper was laid out on the dining room table and there was some scoffing going on. Um, and I remember my father saying at one point, haven't they read Romans 1? Um, and I want to say to you that the center of Romans 1 is not an injunction against homosexuality or even against sin um, itself. The, the center of Romans 1 is actually Paul's thesis statement in verse 16 and 17. And it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. Let's dive right in, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read this and share a couple of big picture thoughts as we go along. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles in behalf of his name, among whom you are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of, Rome, of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is one of Paul's famous run-on sentences, and it's saying a whole lot, and it's easy to get lost. But basically, what Paul is saying is, here's who I am. Um, I'm a slave to Jesus. Um, I'm a Jesus guy from beginning to end. He knocked me off my horse, literally knocked me off my high horse, and called me as an apostle, which is an emissary of a foreign government to establish that government in a new place. Um, I, God like picked me out of a line. He set me apart and um, he made me a Jesus guy. And I, I relate to that. Maybe some of you relate to that. Man, uh, I don't know what it is about my life, but it feels like God just kind of picked me for this and I'm, I'm kind of stuck with him. And so I'm concerned. Uh, my mind is fixated and concerned on who is Jesus and proclaiming who he really is to you. For Paul, he explains Jesus this way. It says that um, God promised that Jesus was coming and um, and Jesus would come as a man born in the flesh, uh, in the line of David, but in the spirit, the resurrection was the, was the seal and the evidence of his sonship with God, his eternal sonship, that he was eternally before the foundations of the world, the son of God and the spirit of holiness, he says, declared this to be true through the resurrection of Jesus. And so the resurrection of Jesus is central 
to what the gospel is for Paul and who Jesus is. Both Paul and Peter um, talked about this uh, in the book of Acts. When they explained what the gospel was to others, you see them quoting this, um, this verse from the Psalms, you will not let your holy ones see decay. And so there is a way in which the resurrection of, of, the, of the dead in Jesus is a trumpet sound of resurrection from death of us initially in our souls, in our spirits, then in our bodies, and then in all of creation. There will be this um, this reversal of entropy and decay. And uh, initially, the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was a proof and a seal that, yes, he is the Lord, he is our Lord, and he is the Son of God. And through him, he says, we received grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's something that we get um, that we did not earn. And that's going to be the theme of Romans is you can't earn this stuff. Um, It is received through faith. We receive grace uh, for salvation in the next life. We also receive um, grace for resurrection life now. Uh, through faith and faith alone. And so Paul begins with that awesome little Christology. And then he goes on and says, wow, I thank God. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, uh, the people in Rome, because your faith, so Paul's going to give them some nice affirmation here. Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. Like everybody's talking about you guys. For God whom I served in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, requesting if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I will succeed in coming to you. Paul is saying, man, you guys, I, you are always on my mind. I am always praying for you. Everybody knows that, you know, everyone can attest to how I long to be with you, how I want to see you, and how I want good things for you. And Paul goes on to say, here's why. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And so the the longing of a spiritual parent is to bear fruit. Um, the, the longing of a father or a mother in the faith is to give something good. There's a giving impulse. If you have birthed something or created something or established something, you long for that thing to flourish. And so Paul is saying, I have a fundamental intrinsic burning desire in my belly to give you something good. I just want to. I just long to. You know, it's like my my wife loves giving uh, really awesome gifts to our kids at Christmas. And if she was told, look, you can't, you can't give gifts to your kids this Christmas, she would just burn inside. Um, Because it's not just that they begged her and she reluctantly said, okay, fine, I will spend money on you at Christmas. It is that she takes intrinsic joy in seeing the joy on their faces when they receive good things from her. And that's, that's how Paul is. Like he, he wants to bless the Romans. Like he wants to give a gift um, to them. And so that's the, that's the first reason that he wants to give something to them. That's why he wants to be with them so that they may be established, um, firmly rooted, grounded. That is, verse 12, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So the other reason that Paul longs for fellowship with the Romans is because he knows he needs their faith as much as they need his faith. And when they get together, they're going to talk about Jesus. They're going to talk about the gospel. They're going to talk about the love of God until they are all glowing Um, hot, you know, on fire uh, for Jesus. And he just longs for that mutual encouragement and fellowship. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that, this is why he wants to come to them, so that I may obtain some fruit among you, 
also just as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul has a uh, self-focused desire. I want to I want to receive some fruit. I want to be blessed by you. I want to uh, do ministry among you in a fruitful way that I see people coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ more and more. Like, I, w- I want to see the kingdom advance in Rome. It's going to be so fun for me. And um, and oftentimes, I, you know, I, I want to preach to Christians that, hey, like, Jesus has put desires in you that are good. And some of those desires are going to be like, I just... I just really want to like bless and minister to others. It's not a bummer for me to do that because I am getting so much fruit. I'm getting encouragement. I'm getting treasures like stored up for me in heaven. Like I'm going to enjoy this forever. And like people, I'm watching people get set free. Like what other life do I want to live than a life of constantly pouring out and ministering to others and blessing them and praying for them and like sharing the good news with them and lifting them up and encouraging them. Like what a blessing. Paul is so... Um, self-motivated, like selfishly desiring to bless others. Um, And so he's longing to be with them and and he's planned it for a long time because he wants to get some fruit among them and also among the Gentiles. And he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the uncultured. In, In other words, he feels a burden and a calling to those groups of people, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Man, um, I love that. Here's the thesis statement, Paul says. This is the thesis statement for the whole book of Romans. And I want you to focus in on it because everything else begins with this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel means good news. For It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, it begins with faith and it ends with faith. As it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. I'm going to center that a little more. The the thesis statement of Romans is the gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who not works but believes to the Jew first, also to the Greek, because it is God's righteousness revealed from faith to faith. We're going to unpack in the rest of Romans what this means that the gospel is God's power. Uh, It's not just a message. It's not a philosophy. It is God's power for salvation, and salvation is both for Later, the new resurrection, um, the new life, the new birth, uh, you know, as well as the new birth now, the first fruits of the Spirit. And he's going to talk about the Spirit-led life in Romans 8. And so remember, when we get into the weeds of sin and law, that Romans 8, the freedom and the no condemnation life is coming. Um, And we can't get stuck on law and wrath because... Romans 8 is coming. Um, And so there is really good news in the gospel because it is powerful in and of itself. And it still applies today, just as it did in this very uh, multicultural, pluralistic, um, contemporary enlightened society, which was Rome. So this is the, the beginning, the thesis statement of Everything else Paul's going to explain in the book of Romans. The gospel is God's power for here and now as well as then and later. Salvation for Jew and Greek because God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. God's election is going to be faith instead of works to receive his salvation. From this point... We begin at the very beginning, which is um, the wrath of God being revealed. So we're going to jump into verse 18, and I want to read this in context because I think this whole passage is taken out of context, and it's used to paint Paul as a real bummer or a real bigot. Um, But actually, Paul is telling the beginning of a very beautiful story. For the wrath of God is revealed. From heaven, verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So uh, Paul is saying that, that God is mad at ungodly stuff and unrighteous stuff. Uh, it doesn't say that he is, um, he is, his wrath is being poured out against ungodly people or unrighteous people, but against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. And this actually in itself is good news because uh, if, if you've been under the oppression of evil and demonic lies and garbage, you want to be free of that stuff. Like that's not how you're designed. You're not designed to live and operate on lustful or greedy uh, or self-centered or suicidal or self-hating thoughts. You're not designed to grasp and clutch for provision and wealth and, you know, sexual fulfillment. Um, You're designed for God. And anytime something comes into our lives that pulls us away from our center and source, which is God himself living inside of us, burning inside of us with his pure light and love, his pure holiness, anything that comes against that, that clouds that vision, that discourages and disrupts and frustrates and undermines that, you want God to be a little violent against those things. Um, when there's injustice in, in the earth, when there's human trafficking, when there is um, m- murder and uh, just like adult, like just adultery and um, unfaithfulness and um, wickedness and deception and death and hypocrisy, you, you kind of want like Jesus to come in turning over tables. You don't want like Jesus to come in meek and mild. You want him to come in with some wrath. And, um, and of course, like, you know, we don't really want people to burn in hell. That's not very nice to wish that. I mean, maybe we do kind of wish that on some people, but, um, you know, that's that we shouldn't want people to burn in hell, but, but we do want this demonic garbage that oppresses us to get pulled out of us and destroyed violently. And that is the wrath that God has against the unrighteousness and the ungodliness that we partner with, sometimes willingly, um, off, I mean, always willingly on some level, um, may, maybe not consciously willingly, but we partner with these, these lies and these things uh, that God is actually very angry with because he loves people. And, and these things, these truths, which uh, we should be embracing about God and, and we should be in awe and, and worship about God, it says that which is known about God is evident to them for God made it evident to them. Um, and so for this, for in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, um, that is the, the, the most essential stuff about who he is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, uh, apparently through creation, original design, through conscience, through, um, you know, just who we are as human beings. We have an ontological moral compass inside of us that, that, and, and a spiritual eye inside of us that shows us true things about God. It says, having been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made by creation, so that they are without excuse. <clears throat> so Paul is careful to say God's judgment is, is just. God's not demanding an accounting for things that people don't know, but for things that people do know. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings. In other words, God wanted people to be fruitful and multiply, but now they're becoming not fruitful, but futile. Um, Their mind is spinning in a hamster wheel. Um, They're becoming futile in their reasonings, Paul says, and their senseless hearts were darkened. So they went from being beings of light and revelation to being stuck in the dark. Claiming to be wise, and this is kind of you know, ouch, claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and in the context of um, modern elite Roman society, there was a lot of people who said, we're smart. We are the disciples of Plato and Aristotle, and we have attained wisdom. But actually, they have not they have not known as they ought to know, and they have not like uh, looked at deep truth. They have only looked at uh, surface level things. And Paul says, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. So Paul's talking about the context of uh, idolatry in, in, in the sense that this society is creating physical representations of God that are more comfortable to relate with than God himself. People are uncomfortable with the mystery and, and honestly the realness of God. They don't want to interact directly with God. Like the, like the Israelites at Mount Sinai, when the law was given, they said, no, no, Moses, please, you go up. You relate to God. We're going to be down here um, having sex with each other and worshiping a golden calf and overeating and just doing what we want because this golden calf is not going to tell us to do uncomfortable things like march up to the Red Sea and see what happens while my enemies pursue me from behind or like go out into the wilderness where there's no water and have to rely on him to do a miracle. Like it's so much more controllable to have a, a, a little, uh, you know, cow made of precious metals that we can worship in front of and then do whatever we want in our bodies because that's that's more fun, that's better. And 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 God is saying like that's that idolatry, that replacing God for created images and we do that not just through worshiping a statue. We do that through any any ways in which our affections are set on something above God, whether it's uh, something we own, you know, like my car or my house or, you know, or people like my kids, my wife, like, uh, or ideals, you know, patriotism, nationalism, um, you know, being whatever, like protecting the environment or, you know, my identity as a person, I'm this person, I identify this way, you know, I'm, I'm part of this tribe, I, you know, I have whatever, like whatever it is be above that goes above God himself in our lives. That becomes an idol. And that's not cool with God because it completely cuts him out of the picture. And it also works against how we're designed to operate um, in true righteousness and holiness. And so idolatry is an affront against God and against righteousness. Therefore, verse 24, because of all this stuff, um, God gave them up to the vile, to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And we see this dynamic in Scripture, and it's it's uh, it's intense, but it it it's just something that's true of God's relationship with human beings is that human beings do a lot of self hardening. Um, and God pursues them and pursues them and pursues them. And then at some point, he removes his hand of active pursuit in a way that um, demonic accusers and thought patterns um, begin to um, come in. And that protection is removed from people and societies in a way that they are given over and allowed to entertain very dark and depraved um, thought patterns um, and partnerships. And both societies and individuals find themselves in this situation in which um, the impurity that they started um, is allowed to continue um, until it reaches the natural conclusion of sin, which is, which is death. Um, and... And they find themselves um, in very shameful situations and stuck in, in deep shame um, because of the ways in which their, um, their passions and their, um, their desires come out. Uh, it says that they, in verse 25, exchanged the truth of God for 
falsehood. It's like they took mud and wiped it over their eyes. They had this revelation of God, and they could have climbed up higher into that revelation through obedience and submission and faith and pursuit of him. But instead, they took this idolatrous mud and they wiped it over their eyes so that they could not see, so that they could not think, so they could not feel. Um, they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. And you have to understand that Paul had a revelation of Jesus robed in white that knocked him off the, uh, his horse and a voice speaking that thundered. And so Paul's passion is that human beings should know God and anything that comes against the knowledge of God, Paul is pretty violent towards that. And Paul believes God is violent towards those things um, because he wants people to know this glorious, blessed creator. Um, and God wants to be known. God is the self-disclosing God that longs to be known intimately by people in a no-condemnation relationship that is fully mature, a full partnership with them. He does not want to punish them or hurt them or do, uh, you know, anything bad to them. He longs to suck them into their beautiful created design in him. And, he, and the only way to do that is if he can show them his face and they can begin to reflect what they see. We become what we behold. And so God wants to be known and Paul wants God to be known. All right, so we're going on from here. And uh, now we get into the meat of um, one of these passages that really stands out to people uh, in Romans 1, which is 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Uh, if we stopped there, uh, we could probably reflect honestly on the fact that uh, we as human species, as a species, we, we get into some dark stuff. And... Um, we have passions that sort of grow and we meditate on them and we nurture them and eventually they they ended up in some pretty weird kinky stuff and um, and ge that's just generally true for, for human beings you know uh, sexually that's true and, and sex is something that is so under attack um, because it is one of the most beautiful things that God gave human beings. Um, it's attack, it, 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 It's under attack both by the religious who in their prudishness sort of um, dismiss or ignore the beauty of sex. Um, and it's, a, it's attack, under attack by the world and by um, sort of these demonic thought patterns that say, you know, sex is, is this. When actually God says no, like sexuality is for um, like covenant lifelong relationships because I'm in a covenant lifelong relationship. Um, and, and I have this complementary relationship with a bride, um, which is the representation of a people. And so every time a man uh, and a woman are intimate in lifelong covenant agreement and oneness and intimacy with each other, that is expressing the union that I have with my bride. And so um, that's why God is so passionate about sex, but, uh, and also why he is so um, unhappy with the idea that, um, that we should entertain uh, passions that degrade us, that deepen us in, in shame and, uh, and self-loathing and self-hatred and also like that just give, give the enemy his way. And so that in itself, that's, that's sort of common sense. We understand that. Um, we get offended by uh, one of the applications of that for Paul, which is his, uh, his understanding of homosexuality and how homosexuality applies to, um, to that, those degrading passions. So he says, for their women exchange natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, the men too abandoned natural relations, uh, meaning sexual and romantic relationships uh, with women and burned in their desire towards one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty 
of their error. And I don't want to overemphasize this because I want to give as much attention to the stuff that follows as to this. But I do want to to say that for Paul in in this um, uh, in his uh, understanding of how God created the world, uh, male and female in complementary covenant relationship. Um, that was the ideal that he was looking at. And when he looked at Roman society and the way that, um, you know, uh, homosexuality and pederastry and like different, different sorts of like sexual deviations from that norm, um, like became this really like dark and twisted um, thing in society uh, that really was, against the original design for marriage, um, you know, he said, hey, I'm just going to call this out. Like, this is not what God made sex for. And it's it's easy to either get offended by this and say, like, well, Paul was clearly just a bigot and he had no idea, like, you know, if, if only he had been part of modern society and and had our modern understanding of things like he would not have been against these things but I think he would have I really do um, because he is he has his eyes fixed on what is this for like is is sexual desire is that just for um, individual subjective sort of like, you know, this feels like what I want to do and this feels really good to me. And so this is the kind of connection and relationship that I'm going to to nurture, um, whether, you know, like whoever that's with, or is it like designed for something very specific? Um, is sex and marriage theological? And I think for Paul, sex and marriage are very, very theological. It's not just about Paul saying, you know, I wonder what would feel good to people, or I wonder what people would enjoy, or I wonder what would make people feel fulfilled in their hearts. Like, he's actually saying, like, I wonder what would display the character and covenant relationship of God with his people best. And for him, that is this, um, like, men and women in monogamous complementary, lifelong covenant relationships um, in a way that mirrors Christ's relationship with his bride. So I think that's his main concern. Um, and so it's easy for us to say, well, man, he's just such a bigot. Like he's, he's lost in his idealism and he just can't see, um, see people. But then the other side of that is it's easy for people on the other side to say, um, you know, to get smug. Or to you say, oh, you know, see this, you know, here's a clobber passage. You know, this is really against, um, you know, uh, this is this is like agenda item number one on God's list of things that we should, you know, speak against and hate. And and those people would be addressed more thoroughly than anybody who is, um, you know, homosexual. Or, you know, like has what Paul would consider a sexually um, like deviant or different or um, uh, like alternate sort of understanding. Actually, Paul's going to be harder on the religious people than on the people in the world. And we're going to see that in the following verse. It says, um, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God... Um, talking about these people who are given over to degrading passions. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind. So he allowed that um, sort of um, false thinking about, uh, you know, about themselves, about God and the world to grow deeper and darker. God that gave them up to a depraved mind. He let them continue to do what they told him that they wanted to do. Like we want to continue to entertain this line of thinking, which is against um, knowing you and against your design to do things with that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And that's how we read that list in our mind because it's, you know, number one, it's it's not a specific thing, action, 
but it is uh, attitude of the heart. But actually, we need to slow down because this is talking to all of us. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind. In other words, he removed that hedge of protection. So, so we, we in our society and our individual lives and our families have said, listen, God, um, yeah, you're great and all, but I'd rather have a golden calf and I'd rather do what I want. So I'm going to just um, lie in bed at night and just kind of meditate on um, dark stuff. And uh, I would really like you to leave me alone. And I'd really like to partner with um, evil stuff. So do you mind just letting me be and, and not convicting my heart all the time and not like pursuing me and not like trying to get a hold of me because I really, really want these things. And God says, okay. And so he gives them over. That's the sense of giving them over and letting them do what they've asked to do. And these um, dark and evil things grow in our minds. Um, and they are manifest, they manifest by uh, a few things. And Paul lists some, some things. And, um, you know, for, for one mention of homosexuality, there is, um, you know, what, 9, 10, 11 mentions of things that uh, people who would consider themselves safe morally uh, fall into. Unrighteousness. Uh, in other words, not having God's rightness in us. Uh, wickedness, which is just a general sense of being wicked. Um, greed, which is wanting um, wanting money uh, at the expense of caring for others. Me having a competitive, a financially competitive relationship with you um, to get more for myself to ensure security for my future, not caring about yours, um, and evil, which is partnering with the evil one, the father of evil, Satan. <laughs> uh, we're full of envy. Um, whenever I want your stuff, um, if I want your life um, instead of mine, or an aspect of your life instead of mine, I'm discontent with what God's given me, and I really just want your stuff, um, that's envy. Uh, murder, which Jesus says can come in the form of literally shooting someone in the head or mentally shooting them in the head. I mean, he says, even if you have um, hateful thoughts against your brother, that's that's as good as murder to me in your heart. Um, strife. What is strife? It's, it's uh, striving, uh, applying effort um, in an aggressive and non-collaborative way with others um, that, you know, uh, that puts us at odds with, with others to get what we want. Um, James talks about these desires that wage war in us. We kill, we covet, we, we don't get what we want, you know, but we keep going. Um, Paul says deceit. Uh, so in other words, like presenting, uh, presenting something as true that is not true. <laughs> and, um, and that's as true for religious people, if not more. Uh, religion provides a, a whitewash, unfortunately. Religion provides a whitewash for um, internal moral death. And Jesus says of the Pharisees who are sort of representative of the religious spirit, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Like you look good on the outside, but everybody can smell the death in you. And um, a lot of the criticism that's against the church against organized religion against the religious institution is legitimate um smelling of death you know people get around um whether it's christians or other religions but just religious people and they go ugh, like ew you smell terrible like you look good you talk good but you are you are so deceitful in the image that you're presenting um and that's um, that's morally abhorrent. That's part of the God image in us is like, we're like, oh, gross. Um, and malice. That's the other thing. Uh, Paul says, you know, what is malice? Like if I have a malicious uh, malintent uh, against you and I'm working against you in some way, I'm, I'm malicious. And he says they're gossips. So if I'm behind your back talking about, you know, pray for brother so-and-so because they're really struggling with that addiction again. You know, it's really come up and have you heard about their kids? Like, you know, this is, <laughs> gossiping is as, as evil as, you know, any sexual sin for Paul. I mean, this is just, this is uh, 
really abhorrent for him. Uh, slanderers, you know. So in other words, if I defame you and um, speak against you in a way that's trying to undermine your 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 reputation or your goodwill with others, um, I'm trying to get revenge against you through my words against you. Um, that's slander. Haters of God, in other words, you know, we don't want you, God. We want those idols. Uh, we're insolent. We're arrogant. Yes, pride. It's so, so gross. Pride um, presents itself. Arrogance presents itself as like a way to be secure and powerful because if you're better than others, then you don't have to worry. But actually, it's a trippy little downward spiral because when I'm arrogant and uh, opinionated and judgmental towards you, then um, suddenly I hold myself against the same standards um, that I hold you to. And judge not lest you be judged means be careful because when you judge other people, you'll find yourself looking in the mirror one day, hating the things that you hate in others. So be careful, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might lift you up in due time. Like, you know, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like arrogance, yes. And arrogance and avarice is the greatest accusation against Christians in especially in in the West in the context I grew up with and some of that is really unfair and overplayed in the media and in public opinion some of that is quite true <laughs> we're boastful look what I did look who I gave to look how amazing I am uh, we're inventors of evil and you know if all these things were not enough we would lie in bed seriously wondering to ourselves I wonder if there's anything evil that I could think of doing or thinking that I have not considered before um, and you know like it's it's just um, where we go to in, when we allow shame and fear and the trauma of our past to just kind of um, overwhelm us and uh, overtake us and we begin partnering with yucky bad stuff. We're arrogant, boastful, inventors of evils, disobedient to parents. Oh man, this made the list. This, this is a this is a tough one for us because we are a hyper-individualistic culture that um, you know, we don't like the idea of obedience. Uh, you know, in terms of, on top of being individualists, we are a society here in America, and this may not be popular, but we're a society that is founded on rebellion. Like, rebellion is our DNA. Like, don't tread on me. Like, we are, um, we are independent freedom fighters, like, to the core. And so when somebody in authority who is not perfect <laughs> and nobody in authority who's human is perfect, parents are not perfect, when they come in we, and they say, hey, I want you to obey, I want you to do something, like it is hardwired into our DNA because it was hardwired into their DNA too, to disobey rather than to obey. And um, and this is is just undermining the promise of scripture that those who are obedient to parents, um, you know, enjoy long life. Like they, they flourish. And I, you know, I can personally attest to like, as somebody who's been very disobedient to my parents and, and dishonored, um, I can attest now to the great blessing of having a positive, collaborative, honoring relationship with my parents, imperfect as they are. And I, I really believe that this is a secret to life and to flourishing as humans that we have lost in our cancel culture. And I don't want to be hard on cancel culture because, of course, there's reasons. And, and I think Christians have overplayed that. Um, but, you know, it, our cancel culture is just, you know, if, my, if, I don't, if I don't like my parents or if my parents don't feel safe to me or if they're traumatizing me or if they're hurting me, you know, I, 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 it's okay. I'll just, you know, cut them out of my lives. And um, or I just won't listen to them, or I'll just ignore them, or I'll do the opposite of what they say, and and we're inviting death. And so Paul's saying, like, yeah, disobedience, um, without understanding, <laughs> you know, not having understanding—that's a bad thing. Um, that is a fruit of evil. Um, that is something that happens when we partner with the enemy. Is we get real foggy in our brains, like we don't get things anymore because knowledge is emotional as much as it's intellectual. 
and it's relational as much as it's informational. Um, in fact, I think it's more like right knowing is is relational. Jesus said, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life." And when you don't, when you don't really have Jesus in your life, like in a relational way, uh, I'm not talking about you know believing in Jesus. That's a whole different thing. I'm talking about having a two-way experiential relationship with Jesus. When you don't have that, then you don't have access to the kind of revelation knowledge that he wants us to have. And so we become uh, darkened in our understanding. Um, We become untrustworthy. So, you know, people never know what to get, what they're going to get from us. We become unfeeling, like bad things happen to other people. We go, "Eh, oh, well, Uh, you know, we get burned out on compassion, compassion fatigue, and, um, and we become unmerciful, you know. Well, if that person, you know, is suffering, it's probably because they did something bad. And if they would only, you know, I hope this teaches them a lesson. They better go back and get a good education. And like that does not fly with the gospel. And that's not how God is. God is not up there crossing his arms at us making a mess of ourselves. He is merciful. He is merciful. Even when we're a mess, he's merciful. Um, Paul concludes by saying, and although they knew the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things um, are worthy of death, uh, they not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. So this is another layer of warning that uh, the sin that is so prevalent and so easily accessed by our heart and our depraved thinking and our evil inventing minds <laughs> when we're in the flesh, when we're without, when we're without God, when we're pushing away from God, like that stuff, like it, it's one thing to do that stuff, but, but the, people actually teach it and people actually uh, propagate it and, and say, no, this is good. You should do that. It's, it's sort of like the Pharisees, um, you know, they would withhold good things from their parents because, you know, they would say, oh, it's Corbin. Like it's, the, you know, what you would have received from me, um, you know, that this is like, you know, de- dedicated to God. So I'm going to, you know, give this to God, uh, God. <laughs> and, um, and, and Jesus is saying like, look, you're nullifying the very law that you preach by your own actions and you're teaching other people to do the same. He says, you guys, like you are traveling over mountains and, and seas and land to like make a single convert. And when you make a convert to your style of religion, you make them twice the son of hell as you are by teaching them to do the evil things in the name of God that you yourself are doing. So what do I want you to see? Um, First of all, I want you to remember, again, Romans 8 is coming. And this is Paul's fearless moral inventory of the world. And a lot of this applied to Paul himself. And so he's not standing in in judgment. He's just saying, look, like, we got to be honest. This is where we're at. Things are pretty dark out there. And, And mentally, people are in a pretty dark spot without God. And there is some gospel that's going to come, but it's going to come through faith and it's going to come through Jesus and it's going to come as a gift um, and it's going to come in power. But Paul is saying, I'm, I got to tell you the truth because the truth will set you free. Um, but it begins with this unashamed acknowledgement that, that this news of Christ in you, the hope of glory, this is God's power for salvation here and now and also for then. Um, and, and he believes, and I believe, that when you get this gospel inside of you, when, when it comes with a person who, who preaches it to you every day um, in the form of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, it actually does do what it says it's going to do. And we are notoriously um, quick to take examples of things that didn't work for people um, when they tried faith solutions and to say, well, that doesn't work because we've tried that before and that's not working. Um, but Paul is saying, and I'm saying, if 
the gospel rightly applied always works. The gospel rightly applied always works. And the right application of the gospel is faith and its relationship with him. When you apply the gospel by developing deeper, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, um, the gospel changes your life from the inside out, not in a way that leads to a lot more religion and garbage, which we see a lot of today. I get the I get the accusation against faith and religion. I get it. Um, I have felt that in myself. That's part of why I lost my faith in my 20s is because of the hypocrisy and the evidence of, um, you know, the negative at evidence that, hey, it doesn't seem like this stuff works. But I'm, I'm here to say to you, and I think Paul would say the same, that when Jesus really comes into your life and is given the keys to your life, your life changes for the better, um, not in a way that leads to yucky religious thinking, but in ways that lead to righteousness and holiness, but um, and and just freedom and just being like the one you behold and loving people. So that is that's my that's my faith statement. I'm not. Um, I would never say that I'm there all the way. And Paul doesn't say he's there all the way, but he does say, forgetting what's behind, pressing on to what's ahead. Um, we're, we're pressing on towards that calling that we've received because we sense it in our spirits. We know it in our hearts. God picked us for something. Yeah, there's a purpose for my life. And God wants something out of my life. And and he wants to pursue me and chase me down. So I'm, I'm going to let him. I'm going to give him the keys to my life and say, hey, why not? Like, if you can make something out of this crazy little life, like, why not let you be, let, let you make me a conduit um, for your presence and your good news. So um, the good news is is going to get better. We're going to wade through a little bit more law before we get there. But Romans is going to be, in the end, an exultant story of God's power, both over sin and over death and over decay in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies. He's calling us to become new kinds of humans, and he is showing us in old-timey scriptures as well as this new revelation, and we can attest to the reality of it today in the 21st century, um, the gospel is the power of God for those who believe. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.